Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Just did my heart really good this morning. Tamara Mapes came in this morning and said that she had just finished her fourth reading of the Bible. Can you just applaud her for that? That just does my heart all kinds of good. She says her way to do that is uh, she reads 11 chapters every day. I don't even read that many chapters every day. But she reads 11 chapters every day. And, and if she maintains that pace, she can, she can read the Bible through twice a year. So she's already restarted in Genesis and uh, moving forward with that. So I, I want to encourage you, if you uh, have not yet you know, gotten a Bible reading guide, that's, that's the way that we recommend is just the simplest uh, method of of reading your Bible through. The, the Bible reading guides are available. They're free. They're on the, the little uh, tables at the back of our sanctuary. And you can just take one and just disregard the dates. Don't wait, you know, have your Bible reading guide and wait till January to start because that's where it starts on the Bible reading guide. Just forget that part. And just start in Genesis 1-1 and move on down and see where the Lord takes you on an adventure in reading the Bible. Because I guarantee you, you will read things in the Bible you did not know were there. <laughs> It'll surprise you and uh, fascinate you as well as grow you as well in your faith. Well, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak uh, again on the subject of forgiveness, uh, although kind of a different aspect of forgiveness. And it, it's just really important, you know, that we understand this is the essence of Christianity. Uh, we announced at the beginning of the year our, our theme is above and beyond. And how do we live above and beyond in life? Because sometimes we feel crushed by life. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by life. Sometimes we feel powerless in our lives. And, and how do we rise above that? How do we live above and beyond in such a way that these things don't crush us or overwhelm us or cause fear in our hearts? And I will just say that the way to do that is to live the word of God. And oftentimes we live below our privilege as Christians simply because we either are ignorant to the word of God, which is why you should read your Bible, or that we just refuse to live by the word of God. We know it, but we don't want to do it. So either one will cause us to live below our privilege in Christ, prevent us from living lives that are fully healthy, fully strong, fully encouraged. We believe in the will of God. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read a little lengthier passage than I normally do, but I'm starting verse 25. And each of these opening verses are just one sentence sermons. I mean, they're just powerful and straight to the point. Paul writes to the Ephesian church. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need, like we just reported. All right? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness wrath anger 
clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Whenever it comes to blessings of God, including his forgiveness, is that we are, it is imperative upon us that what we have received from God, that is also what we give. As we receive, we give. And it is reciprocal on our part. It's not that we can hoard or just captivate the, the blessings of God and just say, all for me, none for you. Okay, that's not the way the kingdom of God works. Several weeks ago, Pastor Scott uh, encouraged us to read the Sermon on the Mount. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Kind of break it up between days. And, uh, and if you will read the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, everything that, that we have just read here in Ephesians, you, you can find uh, the source of, of that in the Sermon on the Mount. And you will see that the kingdom of God is what would our orientation, I'll, I'll say this really backwards from the way it should be, but when we compare our way of life and our way of thinking, our natural way of thinking to the kingdom of God, it turns our world upside down, okay? It, and you read the Sermon on the Mount and it will turn everything you think upside down on its head. Now, the problem is, is that we are already upside down, so the kingdom of God will turn us right side up, okay? Uh, it's probably easier for us to think about it the other way, but really the truth of the matter is the, the natural way of the world is upside down. It's wrong. It's broken. And the kingdom of God, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, it will turn everything right back up the way it should be. But it's difficult. I'm not saying that it's easy. But this is, and everything that we've read here this morning out of Ephesians 4, is really the essence of Christianity. It would be a tragedy if the church was not part of a community. If, if a, there's a community, and, it, and there are probably many out there that do not have a church in existence within their community. And I tell you what, that's a, that's a terrible shame. That's a, that's a terrible thing to happen. If the church were to disappear out of our own community... Um, I, I don't think sometimes we appreciate the full value. A lot of people say, well, you know, why, why the church? The church is just unnecessary. It, it doesn't really do anything. It's impossible to prove a negative. It's impossible to prove that something didn't happen by an action, by the fact that um, I did this, this didn't happen. Well, we can never really prove that. We might draw some conjecture from that or whatever, but... But if the church were to be vacant from any community, we would be missing a vital resource and something important in our community. One of the most important things that I consider that the church does is not preach to you, but to provide ministry to our children. That is probably the most important thing that gets accomplished here. Right now, uh, there are wonderful people who are volunteering, giving of their time to minister to our children. It is a better thing that we minister to our children and, and keep them, we hope, we pray, protect them from a life that would see them in, you know, brokenness, addiction, or 
prison or some dysfunctional sort of life. Anyway, if, if they can come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord, as, as little children and be raised in that, and that reinforced in their life the, the fact that they can live health, more healthy and full and wholesome lives is incredible work for a community. I wish every child in our communities, you know, Sterling, uh, Soldatna, Kenai, Nikiski, I wish every child was in church on Sunday morning. And the fact that many aren't, I think, is problematic. And, you know, they grow up in brokenness and, and uh, unhealthy patterns of life when Christ in their lives would show them a, a better way. The adults, the Christians, it is up to us to live this out. The essence of Christianity. And, and it's not that we can just kind of cherry pick things that, um, you know, that like out of we read, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm okay with this, but I'm not going to do that. To the, to the degree that we do not fulfill the scriptures is the degree that dysfunction will survive in our lives. If you want to live a healthy life, if you want to live a life that, that is full of light and truth and emotional and, and spiritual health, follow the scripture. Follow the scripture. There's no shortcut. There's no way around that. Jesus lines it out for us. And, and to live this way demands much from us. But it, it, it is the way we are to live. Now, last Sunday, we spoke on the subject of forgiveness and that it is something that once we have received it, when we come to Christ, we ask Christ to forgive us of our sin. And he obliges us. He takes our sin away. It's forgiven. But once we have received that, then we are obliged to give forgiveness. As I said, we, we can't you know, just accept the blessings of God for ourselves, but not for anybody else. What we have received, we must also give. It's not based on our feelings. It is based on doing what is right. And forgiveness is right. We forgive first, and then we let the feelings catch up. Feelings, as I said last Sunday, are better at being the caboose on the train than the engine, right? If you've ever seen a train barreling down the tracks, I bet you see the engine in front and never the caboose, right? It's always the engine, and that's, that's because forgiveness is not about feelings. Now, feelings are involved. Don't, don't get me wrong. Feelings are involved, but they're not the driver. They're not the decision-making part of this. And that's really what, what forgiveness is. It is a decision. I will forgive. Last Sunday, we ended our service saying those words out loud. I forgive. Now, why, why did I do that? I, I think it's important sometimes, to, even for our ears, to hear our own voice Say the things that are right. Our decision to forgive is a right thing. Jesus, uh, here in Ephesians, tells us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, because we find offense and, and we get hurt and, and all of these things. But, you know, I, I knew that talking about forgiveness that there would have to be some follow-up messages to that because there's some natural questions that come out of uh, forgiveness. And uh, certainly last Sunday there, there was. There were some questions that came out of that. And, and it kind of sounded like this. You know, it's like, well, if I forgive someone, does that mean then, and you can fill in the blank, right? 
I, if I forgive, does that mean that I have to do this as well? And, and we're kind of, of afraid that somehow we'll open us up to further abuse or, or getting hurt again or all of those things. And I want to address just a few of those kind of questions. I think some of our reluctance to forgive comes from a faulty understanding of what the ramifications are if we do forgive. And so let's, uh, let's dive into this uh, a little bit. We talked about kind of the positive side that, you know, we must forgive. But sometimes we can talk about, uh, make things a little more clear, bring clarity to our understanding by talking about what some things are not. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be talking about what forgiveness is not or what it doesn't mean. Because sometimes we assume those things and, and it may not be accurate and it may complicate and make more difficult our ability to follow through on what the Lord commands us to do. So, first one uh, is this. Forgiveness does not mean forget, okay? I've heard the quote for many, many years and had no idea who actually uttered the quote. But a gentleman by the name of George Centenaya, he's a Spanish philosopher of the uh, 19th century, he made this statement. You've probably heard some form of this before, but it's attributed to him. It says, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Okay, and, and you can certainly see that demonstrated in the history of the children of Israel, right? Is oftentimes the judgment or criticism that is leveled at the children of Israel by God himself is that you have forgotten me, okay? You'll read that over and over again. You'd see this pattern of the children of Israel over and over again as you read through the Old Testament. They begin with obedience to God. You know, God delivers them from Egypt. They're out in the desert and God uh, meets them on Mount Sinai and uh, gives them the law. And so they're in obedience. And that was a statement of the children of Israel. Everything that God has commanded, we will do. Okay. I think they didn't realize they were biting off more than they could chew, but that, that was their statement. So they live in obedience to God. And then there's this kind of period of ambivalence. I think we're kind of teetering on the far edge of this now as a nation. In America, we were founded as a people of religious virtue in America, and, and people will argue with that, but the, the bottom line is that our way of life was predicated on the principles of Scripture. It doesn't mean that, that you know, everybody in America was a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. But our form of government and our form of principles of founding America was, had to be based on something, and it was largely based on the principles of Scripture, okay? Now there's this ambivalence about, you know, going to church is not that important. You know, there are a lot of other things we, we could or should or want to do. And so, you know, that's just not important. We're trying to remove it out of our civic life, you know, religion in general and, and all of those, you know, kind of sentiments and the virtue that comes out of that. We're really paying the price. We go from obedience to ambivalence and then quickly to disobedience. And that's, and that's what we see demonstrated in the life of Israel. And once they're in disobedience, judgment would come, sometimes resulting in, in bondage of one kind or another. And, uh, and then bondage and the pain of that, they'd realize, hey, we have forgotten God. 
you know, and they would go back to obedience, you know, there would be repentance and forgiveness and, and God would deliver them and they'd back to obedience and then it would start the cycle all over again, ambivalence, disobedience and, and uh, so on and so forth. And we kind of live that cycle in, in smaller ways ourselves as individuals, but also as a country. And I, I think that's uh, what we've done. So getting back to our point here, is that remembering is absolutely vital to breaking the cycle, that dysfunctional cycle of obedience, ambivalence, and disobedience in our own lives. And remembering offenses done to us is not to harbor unforgiveness, but help us to avoid allowing re-offense by identifying patterns of behavior in places in us that are not guarded well. I've talked to many individuals who deal with this sort of false guilt, is that they cannot forget what was done to them, the offense or whatever way they, they were abused, is that they, uh, they can't forget it. And so every time they're reminded of it, every time they feel that, they feel like I must not have forgiven because I, I can't forget it. It keeps coming back to me. And let me just say that it is impossible to, at times, to forget things. Now, sometimes we don't actively remember it, but it's, it's usually somewhere in the recesses of our mind if the right conditions or the right situation or the right person shows up and it reactivates that memory. But let me say this, it does not mean because you remember something that was done offensively to you that you haven't forgiven. Those are two different issues altogether. I'll, I'll say something here that might make you mad, okay? But I'll defend it from Scripture. If you want to defend a different position, I'll allow you that ability to do that, but I think I will win. In fact, I know I will win, okay? And that is that God does not forget your sin. What? Doesn't God take our sin and throw them into the sea of his forgetfulness? No, he does not. Okay? And if you have that understanding, you can just toss that into the sea of your forgetfulness. Okay? Because that's not true. God never says, I will forget your sin. He never says that in Scripture. It does not exist in Scripture. That God will forget your sin. But he does say, I will remember your sin no more. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But God does not say... I will forget your sin. The scripture does not identify any sea of forgetfulness. It doesn't exist. It's not out there. It's not like someday you're going to go fishing in the sea of forgetfulness because it doesn't exist. It's not there. All right? So, but what does God say about our sin? Is that I will not remember it anymore. You know what that is? That's a decision not to remember. <laughs> it's not to bring it up in an active state. I think that's what we practice as well, is we don't bring it up. We don't harbor it. You know, because there are, there are times where we just will not, cannot, it's impossible for us to forget. Recently, our grandchildren from Washington State came up. They were living in our house. Wonderful time. It took us a week to put things back together, but we had a great time. And uh, one of the things that my wife does that we really enjoy is she makes waffles, and waffles are great, but it's the raspberry sauce that goes on top that's even better. We jealously hoard, I should say I jealously hoard the raspberry sauce, okay? It's like you have to be a really good friend 
for, to get some raspberry sauce because it's that good. And we, we work hard at picking raspberries and stowing away and kind of rationing it out through the winter. And so anyways, grandkids are here, you know, and I bring out the raspberry sauce. And I set it on the table and my youngest uh, grandson, Joseph, was sitting there and I set it on the table in front of him. I said, now, Joe, this is raspberry sauce. Don't even think about eating my raspberry sauce, okay? I said, that's there for me. That's there for Papa. Don't even think about it. And I turned away. I got about halfway across the kitchen from the uh, breakfast table there, and Joe said, Papa, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> And I did, I did relent. I did give him some raspberry sauce. Anyway, um, but you know, when something is suggested to us, that's what we think about. I, we can't unthink it. We can't unsee it. We can't unhear it. We can't unexperience it. It happened. And it stays in our consciousness. When we allow the enemy to, to beat up on us over an issue that we want and have forgiven, just the fact that it comes back to us and we think about it and contemplate, maybe even it stirs up bad emotions or whatever, does not mean we have not forgiven. Now we pray with time that healing will occur and the, and the hurt and the, and the emotions and the, and the feelings and all that will fade with time and uh, God's healing. Uh, and, and God can, in a moment, uh, heal our, our psyche and our, and our heart from these things that, that have damaged us. Jesus, you know, when he stood up in the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he read from the scroll of Isaiah, he says that God has anointed me to, to minister to the brokenhearted. And so God isn't against us feeling bad or remembering. He himself remembers every sin we've ever done and knows every sin we will ever do, but he does not remember them against us. We, in our journey of forgiveness, should be free from the false guilt that, you know, just because we can't forget the offense. I think in a, in a lot of ways, remembering the offense can help us with another issue that I want to talk about now. And number two is this. Forgiveness does not mean making yourself open to further abuse, okay? Forgiveness doesn't mean you give somebody license to abuse you, okay? It's like, I forgive you, now you can just do it all over again. No, absolutely not. This is what I call the persecution principle. Jesus himself told his disciples this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 23. It says, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. What is Jesus saying in that? He says, you, when, when you're getting persecuted, for my sake, the gospel's sake, if they're persecuting you, if they're threatening your life, if they're harming you physically or whatever form of persecution there is, you don't have to stand there and get beat up. You don't have to stand there and take the abuse. You don't have to stand there and be persecuted. You can go to the next place where you don't find persecution. That is okay. All right? So that's what I call the, the persecution principle. Is that forgiving someone, and this is where it applies, I think, to forgiveness, does not mean we are obligated to expose ourselves to being vulnerable to further manipulation or abuse again. 
Okay? What is necessary is a good, healthy boundary for people who have abused us or broken our trust. And we must understand that we can separate our forgiveness from being a repeat target of somebody's ill intentions. Okay? Good, healthy boundaries are an integral part of living a healthy life, even in Scripture. What are the Ten Commandments? Okay, what are the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are ten boundaries for us. Thou shalt not. Don't do this. This is a boundary here. Okay? Or you shall. You will do this. Another form of boundary for us. And so <clears throat> when someone has broken our trust, injured us in some way, either our psyche or, or maybe physically or, or you know, emotionally in some way has, has injured us, we are not commanded to stay there and get continually injured. If, if that's the case, you need to, to leave. Um, somewhere along the line, and I've talked to people who have been counseled otherwise, but I don't find it in the scripture, if they're in an abusive marriage relationship, uh, many have felt forbidden to leave the abusive uh, <clears throat> marriage relationship because they did not want to break the marriage, okay? Because we know God's view of marriage is, is sacred and we're not to divorce and we're not to do all of these, you know, things. Um, but let me say this, is that it's not the person who necessarily, now it could be, I probably get myself in trouble here and somebody misinterpreting what I'm going to say. But it is not necessarily the person who leaves the relationship. They might be getting persecuted in that city, if you will. Flee to the next. I'm not an advocate of divorce. Let me cancel that thought. Don't think about that. Okay, don't think about that. Let me, let me say this. It's not necessarily the person who leaves the marriage relationship that causes the breakdown or the demise of the marriage relationship. That may have happened upstream from there years before. <laughs> there might be patterns of this. That's when we break the vows, and that might, we might live under that for 10 or 20 years. And maybe with increasing harm and, and injury. That's where the marriage was broken. And until the marriage vows, what, what is, in essence, the marriage vow? To love, to honor, to respect, to protect, right? Those are the marriage vows. Anytime those vows, when we stop loving, when we stop uh, respecting, when we stop protecting, any of those things, when we break, that's, that's where the breakup of the marriage begins. We might still be living in the same house. We might still be officially married by some certificate. By the way, I'll just throw this out there, and you can chew on this. When did the state get involved in marriages, anyways? Why do we have to get a state marriage license? I don't, I don't read any instance in the Bible where they, oh, uh, before we get married, we've got to go down to the courthouse and get a license. Anyways, chew on that for a while. So we might preserve a marriage uh, just because we're under some false assumption that if we leave, uh, we would be breaking the marriage. No, the, the marriage may have broken long before that when we stop loving, when we stop providing, when we stop protecting, when we stop respecting, all of those things. That's where the marriage occurs. Somebody leaving may just be the after 
uh, effects of the marriage being broken. None of that to say that we advocate um, uh, divorce. That's not what I'm saying at all. But to say, if you are being abused, you do not have to stay, okay? Sometimes we blame the victim rather than the perpetrator because we have some twisted idea of what things are. Um, and, and so when it comes to forgiveness, we can forgive. That is a separate issue than protecting what is rightfully ours to protect. But when somebody has broken our trust, it must be earned back, okay? It's not like we, you know, it's like I forgive you, so we just throw, you know, the, the situation wide open. It must be earned, and that at an incremental rate. Small bits of trust offered at a time that can perhaps and hopefully restore trust over time. I don't know if you've ever tried to reassemble an eggshell after you have broken it. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I would, would say it's difficult. And that's what trust is. Trust is like an eggshell. It is best unbroken. Trust gets broken. It complicates our lives to have to reassemble that. It's difficult. It's hard. But it can be done. Healthy and appropriate boundaries, I think, are important to keep, us, keep offenders from taking advantage of us and our trust. Now, boundaries are just simply limits. I uh, mentioned the Ten Commandments a moment ago. What are those? The Ten Commandments? Well, those are the Ten Boundaries. Every law that we have is a boundary. Use the illustration a lot when in, through our fine city. Uh, if, the, if the speed limit is posted 35 miles an hour, that is a boundary. Okay? If you cross that boundary, then you're subject to the consequences of breaking that boundary. All right? Uh, boundaries exist everywhere in life. Every law that's on the books, every law that's in Scripture is a boundary for us. And uh, we are to respect boundaries. And we put boundaries in place to protect us from others. And sometimes, especially in Scripture, we put boundaries on us to protect us from putting ourselves in a place where we ourselves are making ourselves vulnerable. So there's two aspects. I want to talk about two aspects of boundaries. And the first is the obvious one, the limits on how others can relate and interact with us, okay? It's like you have, you have broken my trust in this area, so I'm putting a boundary here so that you can't break that trust again, all right? And we can maybe rebuild that over time, incrementally, as you can prove your good intent to not re-injure or abuse me in some manner or way. So we protect others from inappropriate interaction with us. And the second is limits on how we relate, how we uh, relate and interact with other people. In other words, we put boundaries on ourselves. I don't go there because I feel I would be vulnerable to participate in that. So I put a boundary for myself. It's not for other people. This is for me. The writer of Psalm 16, if you look it up, there's a great verse in there. It was one of my favorite verses uh, among many that says this, that the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Beautiful little phrase. The boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Psalm 16. What does that mean? It's that God has set up guardrails for us. He set up boundaries. And, uh, you know, it's like uh, 
if, if we go to some of the bluffs along the Kenai Peninsula, there's, there's a great bluff down there and they have a big parking lot. You walk across that field of, of uh, fireweed, you know, have you ever walked out to the end of the trail there? And uh, what do we want to do? We want to just walk up right to the edge and look over, right? I mean, we're just kind of drawn to that. Um, but I noticed recently they they put up more boundaries there because it's not good for us to walk up the edge, you know. That that bluff doesn't erode, you know, just right at, at the front. It, it erodes underneath and we walk out on the edge there and, whoop, you know, we go flying. So it's good that we put a boundary there. Keeps us out of places that are a danger to us. And we do that in our own lives. God does that for us. Most of the boundaries, rules, laws, if you will, in Scripture, the boundaries that God asks us to observe are for our good, not, not against others, but for our own good. It's not good to go over here. It's not good to go over there. It's not good to participate in that. You stay away from that. And the, and the writer of, of the 16th Psalm realized that. All the boundaries that you have set for me are in good places. I have a wonderful inheritance. I have a wonderful life because of the boundaries that you have set for me. And so boundaries are not just negative. They're also very positive. Sometimes we have to set them for others. But mostly we set them for ourselves so that we don't stray into places and do things that are injurious to us. So forgiving does not mean that we must forget. Forgiveness does not mean making yourself open to further abuse. My, my third and final point here is forgiveness does not mean that we just cut people off out of our lives. Now, sometimes a boundary might seem to represent that, but the picture of dysfunction that I'm talking about is the tendency to cut someone off if they do, as if they don't exist and pretending they are not there. One thing I wish, especially the Christian uh, community, uh, you and I, I wish we would learn this, is that we don't have to cut, even with people we disagree with or people that have hurt us in the past, we don't have to cut them off. Um, scripture even tells us that we are to Love those who persecute us. Uh, that, you'll find that in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we do that? That doesn't mean that the relationship goes back to its, its dysfunctional state. But we can, we can just say, hey, you know what? There's a boundary here. I forgive you. But that doesn't mean you, you have entry back into my life to injure or hurt me here. And I don't have to act like I don't know you. I wish when we have disagreements, we could just understand, you know what, we got a disagreement here. And I can still talk to you with respect. I can still even love you, even if the form of our relationship has changed. I know that's difficult. That's difficult for us to navigate. But listen to what Jesus had to say here, okay? Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 and 45. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. How many are all on board for that? Me? Yeah. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Sorry, that was Jesus. It wasn't me. <laughs> Don't persecute the messenger. <laughs> 
do you, do you just find it in yourself to not want to do that, what Jesus just said? Like, like I said, that, that turns our kingdom upside down, turns it right on its head. But I wish we could learn to do this. In the grocery store, pushing our cart, oh my goodness, there's that person I don't talk to anymore. I'm going around the other way. Wouldn't that be beautiful to just be free from that dysfunction? Jesus said it here. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it again just for emphasis. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Here's the, here's the result. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Hard. I didn't say it was easy. But I wish we could learn this principle. That we could still look at each other in the eye. You know, it, it, it's just kind of funny to watch it happen. Especially people who perpetrate offense against others. Is that they cannot look you in the eye. You know what is such strength when we allow forgiveness to reign in us, in our hearts, and when we have nothing to hide, we can look at somebody who maybe has done injury to us and look them straight in the eye. We don't have to, we don't have to look down. We don't have to avoid. We can, we can look at them straight in the eye. Have nothing to hide. And watch them squirm <laughs> because they know that they have done wrong. What we may have to do if somebody's extraordinarily toxic to us is make clear our boundaries before we have interaction. Inform them that until they can communicate respectfully or without manipulation, they cannot interact with us. And we can just say that. We don't have to yell it. We don't have to scream it. We don't have to be angry when we deliver that. It leaves the door open to reconciliation and restoration of, of the relationship. And toxic people may not be intentionally toxic, um, that may be their normal. Toxic people tend to have been raised in a toxic environment, and that's their normal. That's just the way that you do it. To some degree, we are all there. Um, when we get married, we find out that normal is just a setting on the dryer, right? There is no normal. The way I was raised is not normal to the way spouse is raised. They're different. And we have to, in a lot of ways, create new normals. This is, the way, this is the way I did it, this is the way you did it, but this is the way we are going to do it. And, uh, you know, so toxic people, people that are toxic to us, it may, they may have just grown up in a, in a far different normal than, than we have, and, that, and that's where we can have compassion on that. Not saying we excuse it, not saying that in some way it's okay, but if we understand, you know, you know what alleviates fear and takes away from anger and hatred is understanding. When we understand someone else, the tendency to hate or fear or be angry is, is diminished, much diminished. So understand it may be the way that they were raised to deal with conflict by creating drama or they may not actually know a better way to interact. And as Christians, we need to separate from the drama. Don't, don't enter into it. I am just amazed at how people will adopt somebody else's offense and enter into that drama. It's ridiculous. We should avoid that at all costs. 
we need good, healthy boundaries. And we can answer with an unemotional response and, and speak the truth, as we read in Ephesians 4. Real power is when somebody cannot get you to lose it emotionally. That's real power, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us when our security and our identity is in Christ. And we don't get our value from the person that's shouting insults or profanity at us. That's not our value. So they can shout and say all the terrible things they want to say, and it doesn't affect us. It. it has no effect on us because that's, I'm not, I don't derive my value there. They're just hurting themselves. I derive my value from Jesus. And you know what? He talks to me in a far different way than that. And when we embrace our identity in Christ, people that are upset with us or want to abuse us or whatever, they have no power over us because we have the Holy Spirit in us and that's where our value and our identity is. So as Christians, we need to separate from the drama. Don't enter into it. Do not participate in it. And we can keep ourselves in the clear the whole idea of identity in Christ is security for us. I'm going to invite you today in just a moment to have you stand. And sometimes I think posture is good for us, you know. And, and today I want you to just maybe open your hands to the Lord. What, what does that represent? What is that symbolic of? There's nothing magic about doing that. But what are we demonstrating? What are we suggesting here? Is that we're open to God and say, God, take all of my my fears and all of my dysfunction and all of my offenses and just take them. Jesus, or we're inviting scripture to cast all our care upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for us. And if we say, Lord, take all this garbage, if you will, from me. I don't want to be unhealthy. I don't want to be unwhole. I don't want to be somebody who's controlled by the opinions of others. I want to be open and free. And replace it with the Holy Spirit working in my life. And we're going to pray. And then I'm going to invite you at that time. I'll just say one, two, three. And, and I want you to say it loud enough for yourself to hear. Hear your own voice. To say, I forgive. And maybe somebody in your past. And maybe some situation in your present. And certainly we're going to have something in our future <laughs> to deal with. And I want our predisposition to be, I forgive. Because you know what? That's the healthy thing. That's the boundary that God created for us. And, uh, and we're not going to allow the enemy to lead us in, a, in an unhealthy direction. So would you bow your heads with me? And maybe just, if you want to, hold your posture, open hands today. Jesus, we take you at your word today. You said, cast your care upon me because I care for you. Lord, we, we want to do that today, not only in a symbolic way, but Lord, from our heart. And Lord, it may be a long ago offense. It may be something that just has stayed with us for years. And Lord, maybe we're not sure if we've ever forgiven, but Lord, whether we have or not, we just offer it to you today. And we say, Lord, I, I, I do forgive Lord, if it's in the present, Lord, if we're dealing with something right now that just is toxic to us or hurtful, Lord, would you take that as well? Lord, we want to be free from it. We want to 
embrace our identity in Christ and Lord not give the enemy any power over us by being afraid of what they might say or what they might do and Lord we pray for all future conflicts Lord that we can maybe improve the way that we encounter these things and Lord not get drawn into the drama of it or or not adopt somebody else's offense and add needless drama to our own lives or Lord uh, to set healthy and appropriate boundaries for ourselves and perhaps for others Lord take those future offenses and Lord let our heart be to forgive so today Lord is uh, just a statement prayer and direction for us Lord we're going we're gonna to say I forgive Lord would you just receive that today in Jesus name one two three I forgive amen amen so be it